I'd love for you to take the Word of God and turn to Philippians chapter 4 this morning. Philippians chapter number 4, please. When you find it, if you're willing and able, we'll stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We'll pick up our reading this morning in chapter 4, verse number 1. We'll take as our text um, for exposition the purpose of the sermon, verses 2 and 3. And but let us read chapter 4, verse number 1. We read this by the hand of Paul, but also by the pen of the Spirit of God. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you once again just to ask for your help and aid. Father, we are so thankful this morning to be able to break the bread of life, to be able, Father, to approach you in the throne room of grace, but also, Father, to approach you in your word. Yet at the same time, we recognize that these are eternal things, that in pursuit of those eternal things, Lord, and that you would go with us. And in some sense, we're reminded of Moses' prayer in the context of the people of God where he begged you that as they go up, Father, you would go with them. Otherwise, may they not go. In some sense, we pray that this morning as well. Father, that in the next hour that you would go with us. Father, and if not, then allow us not to go. Father, we need you. We need your presence. We need your, your grace. We need your righteousness. We need your holiness, Father. Um, your, the, the, the reality that your Son is in our midst um, is the very hinge upon which this door swings, Father. It is what we hang uh, everything upon this morning. And if not, we know we've met, met in vain. So, Father, we pray that Christ would meet with us. We pray that the power of the Spirit would exalt His name. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would rule and reign in our hearts, that, that the Word of God would accomplish what You desire for it this morning, Father, that we have so many expectations and desires for what is accomplished this morning, but, Lord, will yield them all to You and for what you desire. So, Father, do what you will. Um, help us, by the power of your Spirit, simply to strive to be faithful um, in the giving as well as in the receiving of the Word. Father, and help us to do it with the utmost joy because it comes from the very hand of God. So, Father, go with us now, the youngest to the oldest. Stay our minds and fix them upon Jesus in, the, in, in this time. Father, it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much for standing. As we approach Philippians chapter 4 this morning, I simply just want to say that what we have contained in this passage of Scripture this morning um, really and truly um, is a treasure, and it is my prayer that you would receive it as, as so. It's, it's one of those passages where we're reminded that Paul is dealing with real people and with truths which he's been expounding upon previously in the letter, he'll apply those truths directly to somewhat of a, we might call a case study, a specific situation. And in it, we see Paul's directness in addressing what would appear to be a difficult 
and at the same time a necessary issue within the local assembly. We see Paul's pastoral wisdom and a heart for God and these people as he deals with them. That's exactly what I hope that you see this morning as we strive to unveil the truth that we have here in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. If you're with us last week, you'll remember that we had a three-point outline uh, beginning last week, and we took up point number one from verse number one that really took the entire hour. Um, and, the, and the point was to display and to kind of expound upon Paul's attitude to the church at Philippi. And we took apart those five terms in verse number one um, that revealed for us some truth about Paul's perspective in relationship to this particular congregation of believers. And it was marked out by relationships characteristic of a spiritual family. It was marked out by love, both affection and commitment, um, by love to God and one another, commitment to God and to one another, by service, by sacrifice, by joy in that service, and by reward. Really, their lives were wrapped up together in the service of God um, to one another. And, and not only were their lives wrapped up, but in some sense, so was their eternity. And that's why Paul calls the people of God there at Philippi not only his joy, but also his crown. Which may be a new concept to us. Um, because we live in such a, an individualistic type of culture and a life, and even so in the church. And in some sense, we are individuals. And when we arrive there on the great day as we stand before God and give an account of our lives, we will, we will have our lives only to reflect upon. We won't be able to lay blame. There'll be no excuses. God will know every secret of our heart in the deepest and darkest of holes. Um, none of us will be able to hide. Yet at the same time, Paul realizes that his life, his obedience, his faithfulness, those things that he'll give an account for are inherently wrapped up in the lives of others. That he would stand alone. But he won't stand in isolation. He'll stand in an environment of service and sacrifice to others and that service and sacrifice ordered by God or the lack thereof would be a portion of his accounting on the day of judgment. And Paul was longing for the day in which he would stand before God and present to him a people, this precious congregation. And in their faithfulness, in their perseverance, in their labor, they would be, as a, Paul says, as a crown upon his head. They would mark out his life as a victory um, in eternity. Alexander McLaren, the commentator and Christian, writes, The crown of victory laid upon the locks of a faithful teacher is the, characters of, is the character of those whom he's taught. That Paul, given his office and calling, understood that his life would be measured in part by the faithfulness of those that he led. They were his purpose. His life was wrapped up in pursuing them and that Christ would, and that they, that Christ would be their pursuit. That they would grow and in their perseverance and that their perseverance and faithfulness would be at least one indicator that Paul's life finished well. That his race was done and that he would be crowned. Their holiness, their maturity, their Christ-likeness was his business. 
Paul wasn't simply the kind of guy who taught and preached and with his head down saying, you know, I'm going to be faithful and if they listen, they listen and if they don't, they don't. There's no skin off my back. You ever heard people talk about like I've heard people talk about parenting like that. Um, that regardless of what they do, I'm going to do what I do. And there's really no um, compassionate heart there. There's no um, true investment in their lives. And they're looking at it like um, in, in really a selfish type of way. Self-serving. Self-indulgent. That I'm going to complete my faithfulness and, and, it, and, and, the, and the judgment lies upon them. Um, no, Paul was not that kind of guy. Paul was invested. He was committed. This was the tenor, the, 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 the flavor of his ministry. He was striving with the people not only to say, Lord, I've done what you asked. I've checked all the boxes. But he was truly committed to these people for their sanctification and progress in the faith such that he was expecting on that day to present them to God such that they would be, their faithfulness would be a crown upon his life. It would be his victory. And that would manifest itself in labor in a number of ways. Paul would give himself as a result over to gospel evangelism, to formal teaching, to personal fellowship, to pastoral counsel, but also in the day-to-day stuff of life, just like relationships. Paul would prove that commitment, sanctification, in the church at Philippi, also in particularly in these two verses. As he applies it, not only in a, a formal office to the church, but you really see that commitment to the church played out. That commitment, those relationships that we talked about, that family dynamic in verse number 1, where he speaks of loving them, longing for them, try, striving to be a service to them, that, 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 he's their, that they're his joy and his crown. What we're going to see is one facet of that Paul's commitment to them. This case study here in verses 2 and three, Paul's going to move from the theoretical or the theological. Um, he's going to move from an abstract form of thinking. He's not speaking now philosophies. Um, Paul is actually going to engage the church body. And he's going to engage particular people within that body. He's going to name them by name. And he is going to give us some sense of the practical commitment that he has to this local assembly. If they're to be my joy and also my crown, then there's some things happening within the congregation that must be addressed. If their faithfulness is desired of God and also of me, then it demands certain uh, actions on my part. That's what Paul... um, He doesn't argue that necessarily, but these are the implications. That 2 and 3 are a direct outflow of Paul's relationship to them in verse number 1. Thus, Paul engages in what we might consider this morning the not-so-fun stuff, but the necessary work to do. Why? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the body, and also for the sake of his report and his crown on that great day. So we meet two women here in what we've termed in number... uh, Point number two, as Paul's admonition to Euodia and Syntyche. Number two, again, number one was last week. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast, that sermon. Um, And it was a blessing particularly to my own heart as I studied and delivered it to you and pray that it would be as well. That's somewhat of the foundation of this sermon. This is the outflow of that commitment um, and that family dynamic. 
So number two, we see Paul's again, Paul's admonition to Euodia and Syntyche. And we see that in verse number two. You read these words. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Boys and girls, um, an admonition. So, so that point speaks of an admonition. An admonition or to admonish someone means to exhort them earnestly. I mean, it means to urge them to do something. It means to warn someone. It speaks of redirecting their thinking and their actions. It could even mean to correct them. And that's exactly what the Apostle is doing here in verse number 2. We read these words. Again, I implore you, Odia. I implore Syntyche. And then you're going to see the substance of his exhortation, his admonition, his instruction in those words to be of the same mind in the Lord. And the first thing that I would like you to note is that, is that we meet these two particular women in the church. There's not a whole lot that we know about these women. We're going to take a moment to try to understand what we can understand about these women, Euodia and Syntyche. No other place in Scripture are these ladies mentioned. So history doesn't either tell us much of anything. Nothing within the church fathers, nothing early on. So what we have about these ladies is found in this text and these two verses alone. But at the same time, that's not to say that we don't know anything about these ladies. I want to give you a few things that I, I think we can understand about these ladies. And I think that will help us in the, in the practical application. Number one, these ladies are believers. These women, I am confident, are Believers, and that's going to be important. Why? Because the way two believers interact um, is going to be different the way that a believer acts with an unbeliever or two unbelievers. The expectations are going to be different. So the fact that these two women are believers are going to lay upon them some commitment to one another and responsibility, I'm going to argue later, for reconciliation. And that they actually have the ability to do it because they have the Spirit of God in them. And how do we know that? How do we know that? Well, there's a few things in the text that will clue us. Number one, verse number two. We see this phrase, in the Lord. In the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Paul seems to assume that they can actually be of the same mind in the Lord. In the Lord speaks of that union, or in Christ speaks of that union that we have in Christ. Now, who are those that are united to Christ? Against the belief of some, it's believers. Believers only. Those that are in Christ, though that Paul speaks of and addresses, that are in the Lord, are only those who are actually in the Lord. They're in Christ. They've received Christ by faith. Secondly, verse number 3, we see these words. Help these women, speaking of Euodia and Syntyche, who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers. These women here, Paul commends for their faithfulness and labor alongside him. But not only him, but to the rest of the church there at Philippi, particularly um, Clement and the other fellow laborers. The word labor speaks of a strenuous activity, somewhat of a fight, probably suffering that is endured. That These women give every indication, um, at least to Paul, of being genuine servants alongside, Christ, alongside Paul for the cause of Christ as well as the rest of the church. In other words, these ladies were faithful members of the church at Philippi. It too seems that Paul knows them by, it doesn't seem, but Paul knows them by name. As a result of that, we would assume Paul being in prison now, separated from the church, um, caused, about, uh, caused to them in their labor with him, so they've been a part of this local assembly for some time. Because he's been a while, as far as we can tell, from him actually being present with the church at Philippi, yet he argues that they labored alongside him as well as the rest of the congregation. 
It may very well be that these ladies were there in the inception of this church. You'll remember in Acts chapter 16 that, um, that, that this church was born out of a prayer meeting of ladies. Lydia, the seller of purple, and other ladies, plural, were present. Some actually believe that these ladies were present. It's speculation, but it's possible. That these ladies, have, but these ladies have been with the church for some time. Paul knows them by name, and Paul actually believes that when Epaphroditus takes the letter back to the church, when it's read in the common assembly on the Lord's Day, that they will be present. He doesn't say, church, go find Euodia. He doesn't say, church, go find Syntyche. He assumes that they will be present in that congregation. Thus, he directly addresses them by name. I implore you, you can imagine Epaphroditus reading it and Paul, and then he looks at Euodia and he looks at Syntyche as Paul was imploring, beseeching, begging them that these ladies were church members. They, they, were, they were committed to the body of, of the church in, in, um, in service. Number three, if you doubt it altogether... Um, verse number three says, um, ends with this phrase, whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life. I think everyone's in agreement that has read this text, that this is a reference to that register book of those whose citizenship is in heaven. And you'll remember just a few weeks ago, at the end of chapter number three, Paul actually, um, uh, he, he calls to, for them to remember their citizenship. Verse 28 of chapter three, for our citizenship is in heaven. And then he refers to a roll book, a book of life, no doubt calling to them of all, about all of their privileges because they are citizens of another kingdom. Conclusion, Paul at least gives every indication that he understands that these ladies are not unbelievers, but believers. And again, that will be important to us in just a moment. Number two, so not only are these women believers, but number two, these women are in a dispute. Simple, I know. <laughs> not all that profound, but the text is clear. I think that what we have is we have these two believers whom Paul has confidence in, whom has high respect for, and these ladies are having a disagreement. They have a disagreement. Euodia and Syntyche have entered into not only a disagreement, but really, I'm going to argue, a sinful disagreement because of a disagreeableness of heart. Um, this is more than just a, an average disagreement. Um, I think it's important distinction to note that as well. As you're thinking about this, that, that it wasn't simply that they disagreed. It's not wrong to disagree. And actually, I, I venture to—I don't venture to say—I know that among us there are multiple disagreements. And just to be in disagreement with another person does not equate to sin. Actually, sometimes it is the sinful thing not to disagree, um, because of truth and also because of conscience. Um, neither does a disagreement equate to the to the reality of hating someone. I think that's a common. Um, cultural um, re uh, thought today. But if you disagree with me, for some reason, uh, it equates to hatred towards you. Um, that, that's also been bred into the church. I don't know if the culture's been a, 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 a propagator of that reality, um, but it seems that if someone is, is, is extremely offended, if we don't come to the same conclusion about every single iota, 
um, of, of doctrine, of scripture, of philosophy, of methodology, of means of the gospel, things like this, um, that, if, that if we're not 100% in agreement, that, that, that means that, that there's an offense because you don't love me. Um, that's not true either. Um, I, I, have, I have ultimate confidence that this la- these ladies loved each other. Um, they were committed to one another, at least at one, at one time. But no doubt there's a dispute I'm going to argue, uh, maybe we'll just present another question. What was the issue that caused them to divide? You can write that down, boys and girls. What was the issue that caused them to divide? Um, And again, I think that the root of it is, I want to call your, your mind to the fact that the root of this is not so much about what they disagreed on, but the temperament and the character in which they disagreed. And I think you'll see why here in just a moment. But I am going to argue that we can't know, while we can't know the details of the disagreement, I think that we can know the nature of the disagreement. And I'm going to argue that the nature of the disagreement is personal. It's a personal offense one to another. Um, you say, well, the text doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. But I think that we have good reason to conclude, as our forefathers argued, by good and necessary consequence or by implication. So we're not going to make a complete argument from silence. That would be wrong. But are there things in the text and Paul's other writings that would help us conclude um, some, some, some observations about the nature of this disagreement? And I think that there is. So when I say the fact that he does not tell us exactly what the disagreement is, um, it should also be instructive. Okay? Paul doesn't reveal what the disagreement is, that that should be instructive to us. And I mean by this is that we have a wealth of information to help us conclude how Paul deals with other things. Right? That Paul does deal with issues within the church. And Paul actually does deal with issues in Philippi. Paul does in Corinth actually deal with certain issues. Even in this letter, Paul deals with theological and doctrinal issues. Right? And what does he do with them? He hits them clear on the head. He doesn't shy away. He addresses them clearly such that we know what they are. We just finished in Philippians chapter number 3, and we know what the legalists were propagating. We know in some sense what this lascivious nature of some of the antinomians were. Why? Because Paul sees this disagreement to such a degree that he calls it what it is and he instructs the people of God in how to navigate those things. He doesn't leave it up to chance. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's dealing with um, a, a doctrinal issue, a theological issue concerning the resurrection. What does Paul do? Paul hits it head on. He calls the false teaching out. Why? Because the resurrection is an essential issue. Thus, we can conclude, I think, that if this was a doctrinal issue among the ladies, Paul would have addressed what that doctrinal issue was. He would have addressed it if it was a gospel issue. He would have addressed it if it was a theological issue. He would have told told them how to cross their uh, T's and dot their I's if it was something like that. Not only that, I don't think it's moral or ethical. How do we know that? Again, we have a wealth of information in the Scriptures relating to how Paul deals with immorality and it teaches us how to deal with immorality. So Euodia is not looking to Syntyche saying you're an adulterer. You know, Syntyche's not looking to Euodia and saying there's a moral flaw or a stain upon your life. And how do we know? Because Paul deals with those things in the churches. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, what does he do? He identifies immorality in regard to a person within the church and he instructs the church what to do with them, put them outside the church. And you see this throughout his letters. Paul has no qualms about addressing specific issues within the church. So I think it's safe to conclude um, it's a personal issue. Simply by the reality that Paul doesn't specify or detail how to, um, what, what the details are. But he lays a responsibility upon them to work it out. Um, but also I think that there are personal issues um, which are substantive enough that, that, that would actually be addressed as well. For example, one such disagreement that is, not neither, that is neither doctrinal or moral, um, you would find actually in Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, what you have is a methodology um, issue born out of previous history with John Mark. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas actually come to a sharp disagreement, the New King James says. If there is a disagreement among these leaders in the early New Testament church such that it causes them to divide over and go different ways. Paul doesn't want to take John Mark because he fleed the country in a former mission. Barnabas wants to take him aside um, and take him along. There's this disagreement and they eventually end up dividing. And Luke details that reality for us. That this is a reality even among mature brothers in Christ and mature sisters in Christ. That, that the Scriptures detail those things for us. I think that we could, again, it's speculation, but through proper... Um, studying of the scriptures and implication, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say, not only is this not doctrinal, not only is this not theological, not only is it not moral or ethical, but it's actually of no substantive personal issue either. I don't think that, there's any, that would affect the gospel going out. Um, that it seems to be personal of a nature that really won't affect the ministry at odds. In positive terms. These ladies agreed on almost everything. They agreed seemingly on the uh, doctrinal issues. Um, they had a high view of God, the ministry, how the gospel would go forth. They, they, they seemed to be ethical, moral, zealous, godly. Uh, women instrumental in the furtherance of the gospel, possibly suffering along with Paul and the rest of the church because they love God and they love the gospel. This was most likely a disagreement among two godly, even mature women over a trivial matter. An insignificant matter over something that doesn't seem to really matter at all in Paul's thinking. Thus, he doesn't seek to address it with any details at all. But what does Paul do? You can write that down, boys and girls. What does Paul do as a result of their disagreement? Paul admonishes them. He exhorts them. And he urges them to unity. The substance of the call to unity here is a call for each individual woman to be of the same mind in the Lord. That the substance of the admonishment, the substance of the exhortation, is a call for each individual woman to be of the same mind in the Lord. It's a call to come to and to maintain a oneness of mind in Christ. You'll remember earlier in the epistle, Paul actually gives general instruction on more than one account of this exact same instruction. Um, he does it in Philippians 1, he does it in the Philippians 2, and now here he is going to call them in a particular situation to live that reality out. But what does it mean to have the same mind? 
One commentator says the common mind there to share in reconciliation is reconciliation and mutual love. It is the one which sets the good of the church above personal interest and finds its inspiration in the lowliness of the incarnate Lord and the standard that He expects of His people. And we see that in chapter 2, verse number 3. After He he calls them in verse 2 to be of one accord, one mind, the same love, being like-minded and fulfilling His joy, He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you. What mind? That mind which was also in Christ Jesus. And it goes to speak of the lowliness of mind that was in Christ that he was willing not to sacrifice doctrinal things. He wasn't willing to lay aside his deity. Those things which were essential to him. But he was willing to lay aside certain things. Um, that were rightfully His, but it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't cross any boundaries, any heretical boundaries for Him to lay aside certain things. That this is the mind that He calls them to in Philippians chapter number 2. And we see the same phrase here as He urges Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. What? The mind of Christ, no doubt. And this is what Paul deals with in multiple accounts, in multiple books, as he deals with the mind He's not, he's not arguing inherently or explicitly. Now, inherently, yes, that this mind grows out of a doctrinal or a theological bent of Christ. It, it flows out of a true understanding of the gospel. Um, but the mind that he's speaking of is not um, data that is ascended to inherently, but it is the outflow of the character as the result of that. It is the life worthy of the gospel in which they live. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 16, it's speaking more of character almost always. Romans 12, 16 says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not, he goes on to say, do not, expound on that, Paul, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. That the mind that he is arguing for, for unity's sake, is not the sacrifice of dog, uh, things we ought to be dogmatic on, such as the deity of Christ, the, the, the work of the Spirit, so forth and so on. Those things which we, we just plant our anchor in. What he is arguing is that there is a mind to be in the people of God such that they hang on to those things that are essential, and they let go of those things that are not. How? In humility of character for the sake of the brethren. Paul assumes here that they have a common doctrinal position. They share a common gospel. I had somebody kind of, you know, give me a hard time some time ago, and you wouldn't know them. But over, you know, not dealing with the unity of exactly what the lines should be drawn in Philippi after I preached the message. And part of the reason is because Paul doesn't deal with that. Paul doesn't say this is, you know, uh, inherently we're going to draw a line with, with these people and we're not going to step over it. He, want, he wanted the doctrinal type of the theological. Uh, he wanted to know who we can fellowship and who we can't. That's not Paul's purpose in this part of the book. It wasn't then either. Paul assumes that these people, that this congregation is, is, is married in truth. And that what the unity that he's calling them to is a unity of laying aside personal interests. A humility of heart, a Christ-likeness in attitude so that they can move forward in the gospel. That's the idea here. 
Paul assumes that they're on board with most all things. So it's important to note that the call to unity is not a call to uniformity. Okay? Uniformity, let me just go ahead and be honest with you, is relatively easy to accomplish. Cultists do it all the time. It mimics. Uniformity is dangerous because it mimics unity. And it mimics unity by a visible togetherness. An external expression of togetherness that really may not be unity at all. And you can see both in, in churches. You can see both among conservatives and liberals. And it can be accomplished through force and tyranny. Making everyone conform in their hand and in their feet. It can also be, by, uh, it can also be accomplished by the liberals through apathy and indifference. By saying, we'll be together, it really doesn't matter what you believe. It really doesn't matter what you hold to. No, we're not dogmatic about anything. So one is dogmatic about the non-essentials. One is not dogmatic about anything. And we are neither to be tyrannical nor indifferent. We are to hold the truth at a high premium which cannot be forfeited such that when we gather, there are certain things that are common ground for us in which we are not willing um, to give up. And at the same time, we recognize that there will be and are and should be and celebrate differences and diversity that will exist within this family even to the degree of glorying and celebrating those differences. One of the things you'll see paramount in Paul's teaching is unity within the body yet at the same time diversity and difference. And it should be celebrated. And similar as a body, right? There is a unity of purpose, mind, character, and every single part of my body is striving towards one goal. One's at one part, one's a hand, and one's a finger, and one's an eye, and one's a toe, one's a gallbladder, one's a heart, and one's this, and one's that. But it's all moving towards this one single purpose, and that is to be celebrated. A family. A family is a great illustration of that. You look at my family, you spend two days with us, and what you'll find is that we are all different. You know, we all have different inclinations, different personalities, different habits, different things. We have, uh, in some sense, different desires. And yet at the same time, we're functioning together as one family to serve the entirety of the family. And, 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 and ultimately God. That one will contribute to it in this way, and that's fine, in this ministry. And then another will contribute to it in this way as they serve the family. Their service looks different and they have different bents and inclinations. Yet at the same time, it's all moving towards this one purpose, the good of the family as well as the good of um, and the glory of God. And this is what Paul um, commends to us time and time again. So the, the, the problem here is not that Euodia and Syntyche disagree. It's not sinful in and of itself. Um, but what is sinful is to place yourself in a high place over the other um, such that it causes disunity, disagreement, and eventually, no doubt, a bitterness of heart and anger toward one another that ruins the fellowship of God. So Paul, in this call to preserve unity, um, calls them to reconciliation. And you could write down, who, is the, who in this call to preserve unity, who is it? That is to initiate the reconciliation we see next. Who is it? Euodia or Syntyche? And the answer is both. Paul distinctly for a purpose actually calls to both of them. If there was only one verb here, I implore, 
We could have rightly applied it to both. And you see that all throughout Scripture and in grammar. I implore Euodia and Syntyche. He could have said that. But you know what he actually says in the original? He says, I implore you, Euodia, and I implore you, Syntyche. That there is a, two, there is a double um, verb there. The exact same verb applied to both. He says, I beseech, I beg, I implore the both of you. What? To be of the same mind in the Lord. And I love it. And it's brilliant from Paul. Paul, who no doubt knows the situation. He no doubt has an opinion, I imagine, upon what should be done or who is right or who is wrong. And he doesn't act as the mediator at all. He doesn't sum up the claims and weigh out on his opinion. And, and surely he's got one. And he doesn't sit them down after his evaluation and say, you're wrong, you're right, you apologize, you follow out these things. And in some sense, that's exactly what we see in Scripture. And that's what we would see even among mature people, right? Maybe it's because they're mature in Christ. You know? I've got little ones whom I have to walk them through every detail of life. You will stand up here. You will sit down there. You will treat your brother. You will say, um, I forgive you. You will say, will you forgive me? Things like that. And then I have older ones who are much more mature in their personality. And the two of them will be squabbling. And all I have to do is peek my eye around the door and give them a, a, a transformational look. And immediately their demeanor changes. And I just had a whole conversation with them with my eyes and with my face. I mean, in some sense, maybe that's what Paul's doing here. Paul understands the maturity of these ladies and to some extent the squabble and possibly the personal difference. And yet at the same time, he doesn't direct them in any detailed manner. He simply gives them this kind of directed look um, such maybe because he understands that they have a, a, an easily entreated heart that all he has to do is, is a simple correction like a mature child should. That's all they should need. You know, you're 15, 16 year old, you shouldn't, you're, you're 14 year old, you shouldn't have to detail every ounce of life for them. There should have already been enough instruction laid over that life that now they have a submissive spirit and very little instruction is needed. So Paul just gently redirects them, yet at the same time urgently, but, but gently redirects them by a simple act. You know what to do. You know exactly what to do. You know? I've done it with my children. I said, what do you want me to do? You know what to do. You know here what you've done wrong. You know that there's an issue that needs to be done. You tell me what it is. You know? And he lays the responsibility upon each of them. And we see that other places in Scripture as well. Matthew 5, 23 Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, there remember your brother has something against you. If that's the case. Leave your gift. It affects your worship. Leave your gift, therefore, at the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and get your gift. If you think somebody has something against you, whether you think you're the offender at all, you know what? You need to go. You odia? It was, it was Syntyche. She did it. I'm waiting. I'm here ready. Anytime she wants to come and apologize to me, know that I have the disposition ready, my door's open. You know what Paul says? You know what Christ says? You need to go. You need to go to them. If you're waiting on somebody else to come, then you are fostering disunity within the church. You are cultivating possibly in their life as well as in yours a continued um, disunity that will no doubt cultivate um, a lack no, that will cultivate a bitterness in their heart um, one to another. Why? Because they're Christians and they should know better. 
At the same time, in Matthew 18, Paul um, instructs the, or Jesus instructs the church that if uh, that, that if you if your brother has sinned against you, um, or if your brother is in sin, then you go to them. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Whether you're a sinner or whether you've once sinned against, you're the whether you're the offender or whether you're the offended. Scripture is clear. You are responsible for reconciliation. If you have a hint that there is disunity, the threat of disunity between you and another brother, Romans uh, uh, chapter 12 is clear that you are to do whatever that you can to seek peace with them. Insofar as you can pursue, pursue peace with one another. Euodia, I don't care what happened um, to some extent. You need to go. I don't need all the details, Syntyche. You need to make it right. You need to pursue reconciliation. Reconciliation takes two people. Thus, he calls both to that. Um, number three. So we've seen, um, just very quickly, Paul's um, admonition to you and Syntyche, and then Paul's appeal and advice to the church in verse number three. So let's look just a moment at verse number three. And I urge you also, true companion. Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So it is so urgent to the Apostle Paul that not that the threat of disunity is dealt with appropriately and in a timely manner. That he not only lays the responsibility upon the two individuals, but he too lays some responsibility to help and to aid upon the church and specific people within the church. Thus, he calls this true companion to help. He requests, that's what the word means. It says, I urge you also, it is this word that means to request. I'm requesting, I'm employing, um, not only these two to work together and to seek the same mind, but also I'm urging and employing the rest, or, or, or this true companion. A person entitled, you may have a true or a genuine yoke fellow. So Paul reaches out to the church and employs them in the help and aid of these, this discrepancy, this disunity. So who is this true companion? We're not 100% sure. But we can possibly come to some conclusion. Some believe it's Epaphroditus. Some believe that it's Timothy. And they argue this because of the nature of the term true companion. That they have just been exhorted and extolled in Philippians chapter number 2 because they embody this thing together. You may also have a term there that means that says yoked uh, yoke fellow, and that's the nature of the word as well. The word yoked it literally means yoke fellow means to be to yoke together. It speaks of those who are bound together by relationship, by office, by business, by labor. A yoke, boys and girls, gives the picture of a farm life. A yoke would be a wooden piece or a garment that fits over the, the, the upper body, the neck or the shoulders of two animals. And it would pair them together for the labor that they have. And in some sense, Paul is calling this true companion, the one who has this character, to come alongside them, yoke together with them, and pull the work. And to do the work alongside them. This man's a trustworthy servant. And thus he employs him in to do the work. So it could very well fittingly be um, Timothy or Epaphroditus. There's also a second opinion. This is actually the name of the guy. This, is, this could be a proper name. True, or the, the yoke fellow, or companion. Um, that Paul could actually be calling upon someone by name. But the translators have taken this because of what the name means and translated. And I, I kind of lean that way. 
Why? Because Paul's already identified Euodia and Syntyche particularly. After this, he's going to identify Clement by name. So it seems kind of out of place for him just to call upon a particular person um, by a common name. That his name could be, it would be similar today um, with, with, um, with us. You'll meet little boys or little girls with a first or a second name like Honor or Valor. That there is something embodied in that name, but it is actually a proper name. And that Paul uses the word true to modify that for him to, to, to so he does a play on words. He says, your name's companion, live up to it. Be genuine and be true. Paul actually does that in the book of Philemon with Onesimus. Onesimus' name actually means profitable. And in verse number 10, he appeals to the church for, uh, by, for Onesimus. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. You can actually translate that, I appeal to you for my son profitable, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who was once unprofitable. But now he's profitable to you. So he's saying, receive profitable, who was unprofitable, but now that he's converted, he's profitable. In a similar way, he could be arguing here that there is this man among you whose name is Companion. And he's been faithful, and I'm calling him to be a true companion, a true yoke fellow, to live up to his name, to, to, to bind together with these ladies, and to lead them in the work that God has given you to do. To help them. The word there, help, is a strong word. It's a, it, again, it speaks of the urgency that Paul has laid upon them. Um, the immediacy of the action. Paul doesn't wait um, until he gets back to Philippi to handle the issue. No, he sends it in the letter because of the nature of the urgency. And it's seen in the words, I beseech you, I urge you. But it's also seen in this word, um, help. You're to help these women. It means to take hold of, to lay hold of, as in the case of a prisoner. Matthew 26.55 actually uses it that way. Jesus uses it that way. Um, speaking of being seized as a prisoner. And the only other form that this ex exact verb is used is in Luke chapter 5, when, when Jesus, uh, or when Luke gives us the account of the disciples out on a boat, um, casting their out, and they fished all night and caught nothing. Um, Jesus comes along, he's like, cast it out one more time. <laughs> it's like, okay, they reluctantly do it. And what does it do? The, the fish fill the boat. Speaking of God's omnipotency, Christ's power. Um, and what you read in that passage is, is that, that when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish in Luke chapter 5, verse 6, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats. So that they began to sing. There's the picture. They've got such a cat, their nets are catching their nets that's about to pop. They worked all night. They've caught nothing. They're excited and they're with the flood of fish, but they don't have enough strength. They don't have enough hands. They don't have the ability to pull it into the boat. So what does Jesus do? Or what, what, what do they do? They call for help. They, they call for help. Why? Because otherwise the net will break or they'll end up overboard. Without help, they won't be able to get the, accomplish the purpose, get the fish in the boat. Thus the partners come, it says, and they seize the rope. They take the rope by hand and together they get the fish in the boat. That's what Paul's saying here. Leave these two ladies alone. Yes, it is their responsibility, but there is some responsibility laid upon you that if there is no intervention, what will happen is, is either the net will break or they'll end up in the water. They need you. They can't do this alone. Is in some sense what Paul is saying. 
Get near to them. Draw near to them. Grab the rope. Help them. Um, Otherwise, you may lose them. You may lose them. It will continue to downward spiral. Thus, the true yoke fellow is to be the one who begins to go after, to yoke up with them. Why? Because of the commitment that he has, not only to Paul, but also to the gospel, as well as to Euodia and Syntyche. That these are not only laborers with me, he argues, but they're laborers with you. And this is part of the work. This is the part of the work of the church. Um, So the church is now involved. The church has a role to play in church unity, to strive after it. And that's, that's, that's the text. I'll give you a few things of application. And these will come quickly, don't worry. And these are going to be kind of bullet points, rapid fire. Rapid fire bullet points. Number one, what does this text teach us? I'll just remind you, again, plainly, not surprisingly, uh, number one, disputes happen between believers. Disagreements happen between believers. You need to recognize that. I need to recognize that. It should not surprise us when it happens. It should not pop, it should not pop our perfect bubble or our perfect image of the church. It should not when a disagreement happens within the local assembly, whenever it happens, um, uh, that, that we just cast all things aside and say, you know, like it was worthless, this is not the church for me. Like any church and every church that you engage in with a realism, you're going to find people that disagree with you. You're going to find people that offend you. This text, as I said last week, should guard us against an over-romanticized view of the church. If disagreement is going to happen under apostolic authority, much more spiritual men probably than I am and you are, then without a doubt, it's going to happen within this local congregation. And number two, we take that a bit farther. Um, That disputes will not only happen among believers, but disputes will also happen among mature believers. All right? You know, just like mature, just like disputes happen between a husband and wife, not only in the opening days of their marriage, but 20 years later. Like we are people. God has inclined us toward different things. We will have disagreements, even among the mature. And can I say this, just anecdotally speaking, um, before a mature congregation, that, 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 that much of the disagreement that I've had with people um, have been with other mature believers. Um, and those are oftentimes even harder to deal with. Why? Because we have a group of people who are mature, grown in the faith, love God, dogmatic about so many things. Um, why? Because they love God, they love the truth, and they love God's people. Thus, they're willing to fight over it. And, and, and that is to be commended. So just because we get together and you have a a godly group of people that are mature in the faith, that have labored and long-suffered, it it does not mean that that because of that, that all the disagreements and disputes will fall out of the window. You know, yes, they they should and will be less. But at the same time, when they are there, they will generally be more um, engaging. Why? Because you have two people like Euodia and Syntyche, no doubt that love God, love the truth, and love one another. And thus they engage. Number three, at the same time that disputes happen within the church, even among mature believers, and that should not make us comfortable with disunity in the church. Um, Just because it is a part of church life doesn't mean that we should constitute it as normal church life and that that's just what happens. 
That actually disunity, which should be recognized as a tremendous threat to the church. A tremendous threat to the church. It is a threat to the gospel. The reality of the gospel. That the gospel by nature, Jesus Christ died to unify a people. And thus, because we love the gospel, we should strive after unity. Why? Because that's the reality for which Christ died. Not only to bind individuals to Himself, but to bring together a people for Himself, to work and labor as a body, as a building, and as a bride, and for the witness of God throughout all the world. Thus, we should have the same mind, that mind of Christ, who knows what to grab a hold onto, and knows what to grip, and knows what is essential, and knows what is not. That's what true, mature believers have. But it's also not only a, an offense to the gospel um, reality, um, but it's also a threat to the furtherance of the gospel within the church. Um, over and over again, Paul in this, in this letter is saying, stand firm, labor hard. In chapter number 1, we read of the effect that will happen upon the enemy when the church is in unity one with another. That, that, that disunity will actually cause, a, it will limit the extent and effectiveness of the gospel because it, it limits worship, it affects worship, and it affects fellowship. It affects camaraderie. It affects the ability to labor together. Thus, the church should be guarded against it. One writer writes, uh, J.A. Motyer, commentator and Christian, says, Only a united church can hope to face its foes and stand firm. Where there is disharmony, disharmony inside, there is bound to be defeat outside. Where Christians cannot bear the sight of each other, he says, they will not be able to look the world in the face either. They cannot win on the main front of their contact with the world, if they are secretly carrying on warfare on a second front of their own devising. He's speaking about in the church. And that's true. As long as the battle is raging in here among the fellowship of believers and disunity is running rampant, you better believe that those are churches that are not effective witnesses um, of the gospel or effective influences in the world. Um, but number three, you know, it's... It's also, you know, that we should strive after unity and, and, and deal with the threat of disunity um, and because Paul gives us this in precept and pattern. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, it's a clear demand of God, uh, command of God to strive for unity and peace among the brethren. Why? Because that's the reality of what Christ accomplished. That's the institute's pastors and teachers and preachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints. For the unity. That, that we might come to the full stature and maturity of Christ. That we wouldn't be tossed around to and fro. That it actually this diversity in the midst of unity that fosters maturity within the church that makes an effective witness in the world. And then also the pattern. Paul gives us this pattern, clear pattern, of how to deal wisely with disputes within the church in Philippians chapter 4, um, verses 2 and 3. He handles it immediately, he handles it urgently, and he handles it comprehensively. He doesn't let it lie um, for any length of time, and he employs those both individuals that are offenders as well as the church to engage in it. That's what Paul thinks about disunity. Why? Because the reality of the gospel, the effect of witness of Philippi to the world, as well as the sake of the souls of those ladies, and for the good of the church and its witness in the world. Now, this would scare us to death if we were just sinners, you know? Um, and maybe it scares you to death today, but it doesn't me. 
I read this and I see, yes, there's a problem, there's an issue, but this is not something that is above Christ and His Spirit to accomplish by the means that He desires. That this is why it's important that we noted at the very beginning, boys and girls, that what we have here are two believers. Two believers. Why is that important? Because they both together have the ministry of reconciliation. They have the Spirit of God within them. They have the truth of God's Word. And they have the ability um, to, 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 to actually pursue reconciliation in a way that's possible. I think that should be noted. That Paul treats reconciliation as possible. He's not a fatalist here. He doesn't think that, no man, this is the end of the church. It's over now. There's a dispute going on. It's running rampant in the church. What are we going to do? No, Paul actually um, actually uh, ye, uh, calls out to these ladies expecting them, I, I think these mature godly ladies, expecting them to have a disposition within their heart um, to actually yield to one another. And he calls the church into that as well. That Paul treats reconciliation as possible. And that Paul actually expects that these women can be helped, should be helped, and will be helped. And I think too that we should. That when disunity comes within the church, we shouldn't treat it um, as if uh, we're fatalistic and man, this is the end of a good thing. Now what we should recognize is that Jesus Christ died to accomplish this reality, not only theoretically and theologically, but practically in the life of the believers, and that we should pursue one another for the sake of reconciliation. Otherwise, we don't believe the gospel. At least, we might believe it in knowledge and in mental assent, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we believe that it is able to accomplish in us a manner worthy of living out the gospel. You know what a manner worthy of living the gospel is? A, 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 a life and a love for one another, a love for the gospel such that it pursues at all costs, even the cost of themselves, um, unity with the brethren. That it is possible. There is no, uh, this, is, this is my own take. Take it or leave it. But I am convinced that there is no excuse among two believers for an irreconcilable difference. Even if on some issue we end up agreeing to disagree, which happens, we should still be able to have the mind of Christ and a spirit and attitude that reflects the love of Christ as we are still walking together. That we can still, in our disagreement, Paul doesn't call them to figure out how to come to a common ground as far as the actual issue is at hand. You know what Paul does? He says, come to the same mind. Have the same character, the same disposition. So I conclude that, that this could have been hashed out and they still disagreed. They still could have walked together, labored together, got together with Paul, Clement, the fellow workers. There is no indication here that, that, that Paul is concisely or definitively saying that, that you necessarily have to actually come to the same conclusion on this. But you do need to be of the same mind. The same internal disposition, the same character, such that you're able still in that disagreement to walk together. This is what should be expected of us. This is who I, because this is who we are. To think otherwise is to believe that the gospel is unable to do what it was designed to accomplish, which is reconciliation, unity among the brethren. We should also recognize that in tandem with that, and really already um, express that, that reconciliation is not only possible, it is necessary. 
It is necessary. Paul saw it as necessary. Thus he begs them, he implores them, he entreats them, he employs every avenue that he can. Why? Because of the necessity is laid on it. That, that, that boys and girls, that men and women, brothers and sisters, that we are not only um, called to believe that it's possible, but to pursue it because it's necessary. Reconciliation is a must. Um, next. Now forget whether I'm in fifthly, sixthly, or seventhly. But reconciliation is primary. Primary. What do you mean by that? It takes precedence. Reconciliation takes precedence, should take precedence over the immediate need. The goal should be reconciliation, not agreement on the issue. And I've already kind of alluded to that. The reconciliation with that believer is primary over coming to the same conclusion or the immediate need. Romans 14, 17, Paul is clear and he deals with this on more than one occasion. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. This is what honors God, church. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the, for, for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is neither good to eat meat or drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. You know what Paul says? Paul says, I don't agree with you on this issue, but it's not, so, it's not more important to me than you. You know, Paul has such a commitment to the church at Philippi, has such a commitment at Rome, such a commitment, he makes a similar argument in 1 Corinthians, um, that over and over and over again, that reconciliation is a matter of, of fellowship with that person, not coming necessarily to the same, um, same position at the end of the day. And that I care more about my brother, I'm not going to destroy the work of God in us or in him, that he is more important to me than, than, than if I ever drink wine again. Or if I ever meet or eat a food sacrifice to idols. That He is my goal. She is my goal. Euodia and Syntyche, you have lost sight of the reality here that what is important is your relationship with one another in relationship to Christ and the Gospel. That I'm not even going to bring up the issue, lay out the details, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you are not on the same page in the mind of your heart. You're not loving one another. You're too high-minded. The issue here is that they, 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 they could not come in agreement in the Lord, in the mind of heart, in the character within them, in the Christ-likeness of their inner men and inner women. Thus, there was disunity. Not because they simply disagreed. So I would simply say that, that it's primary. That, that reconciliation is primary in the disagreement or disputes. Not necessarily to come to the same position. And that I've already mentioned, reconciliation is in the Lord. It's in the Lord. It's more than a simple agreement on the facts. It's a harmony born out of a Christ-like attitude. It manifests itself in love and patience and forgiveness and long-suffering and a common putting away of self-interest that we may agree in Christ and the Lord. And again, not over dogmatic things, not over gospel issues, but over things that really um, have little effect on, on truth and ministry at the end of the day. Um, not only that, but reconciliation should be God, aided by godly memory. Now, it's interesting in this passage that Paul, um, he reminds them of who they were. And he reminds the church of who they were. Right? It's, 
And he, and he thinks that, and he believes, I believe, that that'll be a motivation for them to pursue these ladies and for them to pursue one another. And it's so easy to forget in our disagreement how much of a blessing that they've been previously in our lives. Paul still holds these two ladies as being believers even in their disagreement. And that's clear in the text. And Paul reminds them of the blessing that they've been to that congregation and uses that as a motivation of an obligation one to another. Right? And more than that, he's reminding them of their union together in Christ, their brotherhood, their sisterhood, their commitment to one another, their right of dignity and respect to one another, and the church's obligation to treat them as such. Also, reconciliation is a matter of personal responsibility. We learn from this text it's a matter of personal responsibility. We must remember, not forget Romans 12, as I've already quoted, if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Today, you may still be at odds with someone. You can't change their heart. We don't expect you to. There's some people not moving an inch, no matter what you do. But that doesn't mean that if it's right, then you shouldn't do it. It doesn't mean because you, you, you think in your mind that they'll never come. That that's, a, that's a sufficient reason not to go. Listen, you do everything and you leave the rest to the Lord. He's the one that can use your gospel effort to change their hearts. And that as, rec- as, as the pursuit of reconciliation, forgiveness, and a humbleness of attitude is displayed to that person, it's, it's incalculable what, what the eternal weight of that might be. Thus go. Go in faith, believing that God can and that God will. And that on that great day you'll stand and that person may be because you've invested in them and God has used you a crown of victory upon your life. What blessed fellowship will be restored Imagine Euodia and Syntyche just, just villainizing their previous days as they labored together in the Lord. Saying it was all a lie. And Paul's coming and saying, it wasn't a lie at all. I was there. And you need to restore that. Why? Because that's what Christ has accomplished. It's hindering the gospel witness. It's hindering gospel extent and effectiveness. And you need to be of the same mind in the Lord. But finally, reconciliation is not a matter of personal responsibility. It's also a matter of church responsibility. One commentator writes, furthermore, the church should be marked by mutual helpfulness. He says, help these women. No Christian, we might say, is at liberty to stand aloof from the needs of any other Christian. The very existence of the need itself is a call to come to rescue. Paul does not say to Euodia and Syntyche that they should ask the true yoke fellow for help. The command is to him to make the first move, uninvited, saved by Paul. We do not know who this person was. Some Again, he goes on to kind of um, say who he is. But you're to help these troubled women. Quote, if any of you would live up to your place as duty as Christians, take this yoke on you and help the women out of their tangled life. And that's not to say that the church should be in everyone's business. But it is to say that the church dynamic should exist in a certain tenor of fellowship that we are there for one another. You know? Nothing has grieved me more to find out Someone's been living in something or, or in some type of sin or, or going through this issue or uh, they're going to leave the church because they've been battling with this thing for the last year to two years and they told nobody about it. Tried to work through it alone. You know? And they fell alone because they were alone. The church is, is, is continually um, propagated throughout the Scriptures in this epistle, but also throughout um, to be there one for another, to be Christ, to be um, aiding to one another. 
And to be exhorting one another, praying for one another, bearing one another's burdens, counseling one another, teaching one another, yoking up together one with another. Thus he calls the church to yoke together, not only in gospel effort in the world, but yoke together to get these ladies out of the sin in their life and back into fellowship one another for the sake of the gospel and the sake of their souls. Know this, like I'm not going to be a meddler in your life. Know this, that I love you. That I am here to serve you in whatever capacity that God will allow me. And that just as I hope that my children will have that we will have such a relationship and communication such that they don't go years with harboring something in their heart that I never knew. I'm not omniscient. Um, that you will feel and know that my door is always open and my hands are always yours. Whether we agree or agree to disagree, I am not here to make you, to make this place a cult. Um, And I'm not here to make you inherently like me. That my goal is that you would be like Christ and whatever it takes. Um, We are here. And I want you to know that there is a whole congregation of people sitting around you just like that. That, 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 that love you and are invested in your sanctification. They would love to wrap themselves up in your life. And that can't be with everybody, but it can be with somebody. And there is somebody here that desires more than anything to come alongside you and help and aid you in whatever you're struggling with. Why? So that you may stand complete in Christ. Not only on that great day, but now. So this text has much to say, practically speaking, theologically, about... Real life here and there, now, you know. This is not just theoretical. Unity is something very practical. As Paul takes up the, 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 the determination to handle it on a practical level, you know. So I hope today that you would see the threat of disunity, the call to unity, how imperative that is in the church. And as you reflect upon it today, I would just ask you, is there someone out there um, in which you have concluded there is no possible hope of reconciliation. If so, if they're a believer, I had it this week. Anecdotal, I know. I texted a man this week whom I've tried to reconcile with on more than one account. And he says we are, but I know we're not. I can tell because the fellowship is still not there. I can tell because of the distance. I can tell because... Um, like in the days that they labored together, Euodia and Syntyche, there was just this sweet peace among them such that they could work together even in their disagreements. And I can tell you that's not possible with us. I mean, it's good on paper. But there's just a, a, a sorrow of heart that I have because I know the gospel's power enough to accomplish that. And I'm going to do whatever it is on my part um, to seek peace with that person. I have to restore that fellowship and labor. And that's what we long for. That's gospel beauty. That's gospel majesty. That's gospel power. Um, is there someone in that, like you're like, there's, then you have a personal responsibility to go to that person. Uh, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of their own soul, for the sake of yours, and the sake of this church. And if you need help, you're filled with, this congregation is filled with a group of people and that will no doubt yoke up alongside you, whatever the cost. So let us help you. Let us know. Father, we love and thank you and praise you. We thank you for the privilege of just reading your word, Father. And we pray some understanding, gaining some understanding from it. Father, what glorious realities we have. 
Father, just continually enamored by the truth of the gospel. The fact that you would save sinners like us. Father, stain upon our lives is so seemingly great that, that we should not be loved. Yet at the same time, in all of your grace, we recognize and receive wholeheartedly the grace that you've extended to us. Well, I can't wrap my mind around all that, Father. I glory and revel in it. Father, and not only is that true in my own life, but so many, Father, in this congregation, testify to that reality as well. The display of your grace, Father, not only in my own life, but in the lives of these people, I mean, it's just paramount. Father, it's more than we deserve. And it is the ground by which we labor. Father, just the gratitude of heart is beyond our understand is, is, is beyond is beyond us, Father. No doubt, um, is birthed out of the wellspring of grace that you've extended to us. And saying that, Father, we would pray um, that you would take that reality even deeper, firm it up in our hearts, Father, um, solidify it in our minds, codify it in our in our very being, Father. Make the gospel reality so evident and prevalent among our thinking. Um, that that we are by nature agreeable people, seeking, Father, um, out of love for our brethren, unity within the body. Father, help us to know what things to grab a hold of, to grip, Father, to cling to um, in the gospel. And let us know, Father, within the life of the body, those things which we can willingly forsake for the sake of others. And Father, help us to realize that when we give those things up, it was really not a loss at all. But we gained a brother. And how much more treasure, Father, in this life as well as in heaven is that. When we give up things and fellowship is restored, we've lost nothing. But we've gained an eternal reward in which is encompassed in our brother, in our sister. Father, give us a love for one another. It's more than ethereal, but it's practical. And help us, Father, to do those things which are right. And help us, Father, by rewarding those, even those endeavors, by restoring the fellowship of the saints. Father, may this reality characterize our community here at Christ Bible Church, not only now, because it does. And I thank you for that. But may it be maintained for fault after with our feet dug in, not only today, but, Father, for the next three decades, for the next three generations. Father, may this be at the forefront of our thinking because of our love for Christ and our love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing, conclude with the song, Jesus, I Love Thee. It's number 380. At the same time, the man will come forth again. Now, once again, don't feel obligated to give. This is just a, a last night, a, a, a possible opportunity for service.